this Easter morning, we gather together caught between two stories. The story of the way things are and the story of the way things ought to be. A few weeks ago, I was in my office after the service, and I could hear one of my sons uh, outside in the hallway where they do all of the communion prep, all of, all, all of the communion stuff is, is done in the hallway out there. And I, I couldn't hear exactly what was being said, but I could tell he was really upset about something. Um, and then he storms into my office, and he says, Kroger? And I said, yeah, what about Kroger? He said... We get our communion bread from Kroger? <laughs> I said, yeah, where did you think we got it from? From heaven? <laughs> and I laughed. And it was cute. But at the same time, there was this little um, moment of sadness to watch this childlike assumption come undone. In a moment, communion bread doesn't come from God. It comes from Kroger. What a terrible realization. But as much as I hate to say it, he better get used to it. What is life if not one big disillusionment journey? What is life if not the shattering of what we want to be true? by the reality of what is actually true. This is why I love Easter so much. It is as if a transfiguration has swept across this room. And for a moment, we get to escape the way things are. This world of tears, of pain, of so much hatred and violence, of evil sin, and ultimately death. For a moment, we escape the way things are and we allow ourselves to get caught up in this indulgence of the way we wish things were. For a moment, aided by glorious music, beautiful decorations, the company of friends and family, and those we love the most, and joyful nostalgia... For a moment, we escape into a dream where bread comes from heaven, not Kroger. But it can't last, right? Is the point. I mean, it's nice to get to gather together and pretend hope. But we all know all of this will again give way to the harsh disillusionment that plagues all of our lives. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if our gathering was not merely sentimental, wishful thinking, but a protest? A protest against the way things are. A declaration that our cynicism is a liar. And that hope is actually truer. That the way things are will surrender to the way things ought to be. This is the Apostle Paul's main argument in 1 Corinthians 15. And in the verses we 
are going to look at this morning, we see most clearly this struggle unfold. This rivalry between our reality and our longings. Between the way things are and the way things ought to be. Let's explore each of those together and see who wins. Very simply, we will look at the way things are and the way things ought to be. Let's start with the way things are. If you are not familiar with the Bible, you need to know that it is not a book with its head in the clouds. It tells a brutally honest story, at times uncomfortably honest story, that acknowledges the cruel realities of the way things are. And it also offers a very compelling reason for why things are the way they are. Look at the first half, first half of verses 21 and 22. For as by one man came death. And then in verse 22, he repeats himself only more specifically. For as in Adam, all died. Before we talk about the death here, understand that the Bible began as a story of life, of perfect life. God's original intentions for humanity, for this creation, was the story that all of us are longing for. We actually did have it at one point. In fact, that's the very reason that those longings are there. We cannot cannot shake the life that we were made to live. The yearnings for goodness and justice and peace and joy and ultimately life without death, these are all deep memories of Eden. Echoes of God's design that is inside of all of you. So how then did we come to the way things now are? Well, the perfect story of creation can only be lived in submission to our Creator's perfect will. It only works. It only flourishes in obedience to our Creator. And God warned us from the beginning. He said, if you disobey, you will surely die. If you disobey, you are going to introduce a new story into this creation, a horrible story marked not by life but by death. Well, you can read the tragedy unfold for yourself in Genesis 3, but Paul sums it up here. As by one man came death, for in Adam all died. What happened is that Adam, the head of humanity, the representative of humanity, chose to rebel. And upon his rebellion, just as God promised, death came into the world. Adam's disobedience changed the story for everyone. And our disobedience to this day continues that same sad story of death. When God said, that we shall surely die. He meant that we are going to, yes, literally die. It's the punishment. But our graves are only the final outcome of an entire story of death. What he meant is that all of creation is going to be marked, defiled by death. Death is the Bible's favorite word to sum up this cursed existence that we are all trapped in. Death is the disease of creation that infects every story of creation. So we were made for a life of love. But love is put to death at the hands of hatred, prejudice, 
We were made for a life of friendship, but friendship is constantly being put to death at the hands of betrayal. We were made for a life of joy, but joy is put to death at the hands of so many painful moments in life. We were made for a life of peace, but peace is put to death at the hands of violence, which is everywhere. Not just physical violence, but the violence of our words. We were made for a life of happiness, but happiness is put to death at the hands of your depression. We're made for a life of justice, but justice is put to death at the hands of injustice everywhere. And yes, on an ultimate level, we were made for eternal life. But life is put to death at the hands of your approaching grave. Don't you see? Everything, everything is now violated and vandalized by death. Which is why you're hardened, sneering, cynicism is in many ways justified. We don't have room for childish, wishful thinking this morning because as soon as we walk outside this sanctuary, it's going to die. Happy Easter. But what do you want me to do, right? You want me to just pretend this morning? You want me to patronize your pain and insult your intelligence by pretending this life is something other than what it is? It is what it is. And Paul is saying it's brutal. As in one man, death has come to all creation. But does it have to be that way? Must we relegate ourselves to the way things are and give up on the way things ought to be? If what I'm about to say in the next few minutes is true, then I want every person here to understand there is an escape from the story you think you cannot escape. If what I'm about to say is true, then you do not have to surrender your longings for another story. We have admitted the way things are. Let's now look at the way things ought to be. The best news in the world, the best news this world has ever received is that there are two halves to verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Putting it as simply as possible for the sake of time. The Bible claims that the resurrection of Jesus is the cure to all the death we've been talking about. It is is the cure to the death story. The cross of Jesus is the answer to the penalty of death. Meaning what we've done, our rebellion against our Creator that has led to all of this death mess, that's no small thing. It's an enormous thing. It's a horrible thing that deserves a horrible punishment. But Jesus took the punishment himself on the cross. That's what we've been dwelling on over the past few days of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. So the penalty of the death has been paid for. But what about the cure? That's where we turn to a theology of the resurrection. Paul says in Adam we all die. Adam introduced a new story that he has passed on to all of his descendants. And it is the story of death. But there's more to the story. By man came death, 
by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. By one man came this terrible story of death, but in another man is offered now a new story of life. In Adam we die, but in Christ we shall be made alive. Jesus came to rewrite the story. He is the second Adam. A new head, a new representative of a new humanity. He is the new beginning of a new story. All of us are in Adam's story, but now all who belong to Jesus, who through trust and allegiance belong to Jesus, are transferred out of Adam's story and into his story. And what is his story? Resurrection from the dead. The rebirth of the way things ought to be. Life as God designed it. Life as you long to know it. Life without the sting of death. Life, life, eternal life. This is the offer of the risen Jesus. In the same way, we all inherit Adam's story of death. We can now all inherit Christ's story of life. But where is this life? you might ask, as you should. I belong to Jesus. Where is this second story of the way things ought to be? Where is this resurrected story of life? Or if you don't belong to Jesus, perhaps you would say, yeah, right, Christians, show me that story and I'd love to join in. Show me that this works and sure, I'll take it. In other words, this is all great theology, but it doesn't seem to work practically. It's fun to believe bread comes from heaven, but it comes from Kroger. Well, our passage is not unaware of this struggle. There is an important qualification that bookends the verses that we've been considering. Verse 20 and 23 bookend the 21 and 22. Verse 20 but in Christ, if, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Twice the word firstfruits is used to describe this new story that Jesus is rewriting. The resurrection of Jesus is a firstfruit. Now, they were an agrarian culture... So they would get the meaning of that. Perhaps it's lost on us. In a culture that lives and dies by the harvest, the first fruit was a blessed sight. That first green, the first sprout of life after winter's thaw, that tells you the harvest is near. Practically speaking, the first fruit didn't offer much at all to them. It didn't change their life. It didn't feed their family. It didn't bring prosperity. It didn't change their reality in the moment, but the first fruit was the sign that all of those things were coming. The first fruit was hope. It was the guarantee of hope that the harvest is coming, that the fullness is near. And that is how the Bible talks about the resurrection of Jesus. Not the fullness of what we long for, but the guarantee of what we long for. You see, if Jesus is the first fruit, then we ask, well, what is the harvest? 
Paul says, each in his own order. Christ the first fruit, and then those who belong to Christ. We are the harvest of Christ's, cre- of Christ's resurrection. We suffer now in the story of death, and yes, we too must succumb to death, but our story will be like Christ's story. We too will be raised, and we will be raised within a new story, the story of the way things ought to be. So, here is the challenge to your disillusioned souls. Has the first fruit actually bloomed? If he has, then the harvest is coming. If he has, then you can no longer say that this is just the way things are and things will never change. You can no longer say it's impossible to imagine another story. If Christ is risen, that is definitively untrue. One time the story did end differently. One time the story that we all want to be true became true. One time the way things are surrendered to the way things ought to be. And the promise here is that it wasn't just one time. It was the first time. The first of countless stories that will be resurrected and turned into the story of the way things ought to be. So did the first fruit actually bloom? The answer is yes. He is risen indeed. I spent all week writing on that, so I'm not going to take time here to defend it. You can uh, go to our website and look at that. Suffice to say this morning, there is a reason why Paul says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised. Paul calls it a fact Because it is a fact. It's not a legend that was passed down to Paul. It was a fact that Paul encountered, that hundreds of others saw for themselves. It's a fact, which means the first fruit is a fact, which means the harvest that is coming is a fact. So here's my question for everyone this morning. What are you going to do with your longing for another story? You have the way things are, but you cannot escape the feeling that this is not how things ought to be. This is not how things should be. You cannot shake this yearning for the way things ought to be. What are you going to do with that yearning? What are you going to do with that desire for the way things ought to be? You can choose to do what so many these days are choosing to do. Simply suppress the yearning. And give up. Suppress the yearning is nothing more than silly coping mechanism that weak people need. You can squelch the dream of the way things ought to be and simply relegate yourself to the way things are. This reality is the only reality. This story is the only story. This cruel, dark, death-filled existence is the only option. So I better get used to it and try to make the best of it. You could do it that way. All of these longings, they are just vain, childish, impossible silliness that need to be dismissed because they're making me miserable with the illusion of hope. You can do that. That would make Nietzsche proud. This is what he said. Hope 
in reality, is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of men. Hope is just tormenting you. Give up on it. Give in to the disillusionment. This is all there is. Sorry, you got a few more years. That's one option. Here's the other option. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Not as a singular event, but as a first fruit event. Not as a happy ending of his story, but as the beginning of a whole new story. A story that you can be a part of if you belong to him. All those longings for another story are actually remnants of a story that we had that we once had but lost, they are inside of you because they're supposed to be true for you. And in Christ, they can be true for you. In Christ, the story we all so desperately want to be true has broken through the story we all know to be true with the promise to us that in Christ it can be true again. Beloved, you don't have to give up on your longings. You don't have to give in to this story. Instead, and this is my plea to the followers of Jesus, repent of your cynical disillusionment and indulge the hope of the way things ought to be. Nothing would honor the risen Jesus more today than to get drunk on hope. To lose yourself in the dream of the way things ought to be with no hesitation, without any reservation. Because that's our problem, right? We believe, but with hesitancy. A few nights ago, this same son said something else that I think is very telling. We were Thursday, it was Monty Thursday, devotion night at our house, so we went over the Passover and... Um, you know, the slaughtering of the lamb, the blood on the doors. Um, and so if the spirit of judgment and death saw the blood, it would pass over the house. And then we took him to Jesus, took all our boys to Jesus and talked about Jesus as the lamb of God. And because of his blood, we no longer had to fear judgment, death, all that stuff. And they all believe. I said, is this, believe this? Yes, yes, yes. Then he said, Daddy, don't you think we should put some blood on the door just in case? That's the way of faith for a believer. I believe. I'm not so sure I believe. I want it to be true. Not so sure it's true. Brothers and sisters, Easter is the day of surety. You leave here today with certainty that every single disappointment in your life, every single pain endured, Every single tragedy experienced, every single injustice suffered, every single sin committed, every single thing that has happened that ought not to have happened is going to become untrue. Christ is risen. The first fruits of the way things ought to be, and soon comes the harvest of the way things ought to be, without hesitation, let us go forth, indulging ourselves on hope. Let me pray. Jesus, you are risen, you are true, and you are just the beginning. 
of everything we long for. Now, at this meal of sacrifice that has with it the promise of your return, assure our hearts of the truth that we might leave here, not as cynics, but as the hopeful. May we indulge in the goodness of our destiny, we pray. Amen.